Welcome to the She Plays on Women's Football podcast. I'm your host Harry Chan. This week, we look at some behind-the-scenes impacts after the hosts of the Women's World Cup 2023 were announced. I can announce the host country of the FIFA Women's World Cup. 2023, which will be Australia, New Zealand. Congratulations and thank you very much. First, some news from this week. England international Daniel Cart will leave Arsenal woman when her contract expires this summer. The 27-year-old striker scored 60 goals in 184 appearances during her 11-year spell with the Gunners. Now Carter helped the North London club win three WSL titles, four FA Cups, and five Continental Cups during her time at the club. However, she has missed most of the past two campaigns because of serious knee injuries. Tottenham Hotspur captain Jenna Scalacci has retired at the age of 36. The defender has been with the club continuously since 2009, having also spent a further year there at the start of her career. She was part of the Tottenham side that won promotion to the Women's Super League in 2019 and finished 7 in the 2019-2020 season. We wish her all the best in her retirement. The FA's Baroness Sue Campbell is quote optimistic. Some crowds may be allowed at next season's WSL as well as other sports. She said and we quote, I am fairly optimistic we might be able to open and not play behind closed doors, but the government changes the rules so regularly. It's kind of hard to keep pace. I'm not saying it's definite, but it's certainly on our list. For all the team sports, it's critical really that we get people eventually back into the grounds. England internationals Lucy Browns and Alex Greenwood have agreed short-term contract extensions with Lyon. Fullbacks Browns and Greenwood were out of contract on the 30th of June, but will now remain with the Champions League holders until the end of August. Birmingham City woman captain Kerry's Harrop has left the club after deciding against extending her contract. She was part of the team that won the 2012 FA Cup final and captain decided in the 2017 final defeat by Manchester City at Wembley. United States winger Megan Rapino is one of the three internationals to have withdrawn from the NWSL Challenge Cup amid coronavirus fears. Now forward Christian Press and midfielder Tobin Heath will not play as well because of quote uncertainty caused by the virus, as you may remember from Last week's episode, six or at least six Orlando Pride players have tested positive for the coronavirus. Now, this is a bigger problem perhaps in the United States. The country has opened up, but there seems to be ignorance, if anything, for the coronavirus. Sports are resuming, businesses are reopening, and it would seem that NWSL Challenge Cup starting of course these few days may 
bring new coronavirus cases to the league and to the athletes. So perhaps it is a good thing for football to return, but it is also a big problem that cases are not falling in any sense in the USA, and to continue with the NWSL seems to be irresponsible. And as much as we want to see women's football resume. I just don't think this is the appropriate time. I don't think it's suitable to restart now. As much as we want to, again, see football being played, we just think the protocols in place and the mere fact that the number of cases are rising is testament to the fact that sports perhaps should not resume yet, especially how we think it will give a False message to the people watching, showing them that we are back to normal. When the USA, out of any place on planet Earth, really is not back to normal, and it's something that they probably have to recognize. Meanwhile, Telegraph Sports reveal that the FA and the English Football League do not monitor the number of players who identify as black. Asian or another ethnic minority, or BAME, in the elite male and female game. Now, FA Director of Women's Football, Baroness Sue Campbell, who we just mentioned, said that the lack of black representation on the FA sport is quote shocking, but the organization is working to promote black people into leadership roles. Now, Troy Townsend, who is the head of development for football's equality and inclusion campaign, check it out. Has said that the government body has said that the governing body should make the collection of data quote a massive priority to help ensure better representation of Black and Asian people within the game. Adding quote, let's stop putting out messages when actually people are now just interested in actions. And we think that when we look at the FA's board and the representation, which is none for Black people. Or people of other ethnic minorities, and as Townsend said, it's time to stop putting out messages like what Baroness Campbell is still doing, and perhaps for the FA to take action. And it seems that if anything, the FA is still slow to adapt to changes in women's football, let alone racial injustices. So, if anything, we hope that the FA will. Step up in the efforts to change the representation in the game. In other news, Belgian forward Tessa Wollard will leave Manchester City on the first of July when her contract expires. The 27-year-old had been with the WSL club since leaving German club Wolfsburg in 2018. Arsenal defender Victoria Schneiderbeck has signed a new deal with the WSL club. The 29-year-old Austria captain joined in 2018, having spent 11 seasons with Bayern Munich, where she won two foreign Bundesliga titles. Manchester United women's forward Jess Sixworth has signed a new deal to keep her with the WSL club next season. The 25-year-old joined the club from Doncaster Rovers Bells during United's formation in 
And also another forward of Manchester United, Ella Toon, has signed a new two-year contract with the Red Devils, running until 2022, with the option of a further year. The 20-year-old has also been with United since the summer of 2018. Everton midfielder Abby Lay Stringer has signed a new two-year deal as well with the Toffees until 2022. The 25-year-old has been with the Toffees since arriving from Birmingham City in 2018. Australian midfielder Ella Mastrantonio has signed for WSL side Bristol City from W League club Western Sydney Wanderers. The 28-year-old's move reunites her with Bristol boss Tanya Oxtobi, having played together at Perth Glory. Bristol City fullback Fire Bryson has signed a new two-year deal with the WSL side. The 23-year-old joined from Everton in January and made five appearances in 2019-20. Welcome to our crash course segment in focus, where we take a look at one hot topic in women's football and dissect it for you in the episode. This week, we want to look at the hosts of the 2023 Women's World Cup, Australia and New Zealand. Now, we did an episode covering the bid before, but now that they've won, we begin to look at some of the behind-the-scenes impacts. For this, it's time for in focus. This will be the first Women's World Cup in the Southern Hemisphere. It will also be the first time the event is co-hosted across two football federations, that is Asia and Oceania. Now, in addition, it will be the first time again the tournament will have 32 teams, like the men's competition, a move which is we expect to lift the earning capacity of the event above previous editions. Now, some estimates show that the tournament will bring in more than 500 million US dollars in revenue, but only five million dollars has been spent on the 2023 joint bid, with the FFA, that is the Football Federation Australia, the Football Association in Australia, expecting to profit from the event from more than 250 million through direct revenue from ticket sales, hospitality, broadcast deals, and government contributions. Now, with the exception of the Sydney Football Stadium, which was being reconstructed before the vote in any event, none of the 13 proposed stadiums across Australia and New Zealand requires major construction spends. So it is not a surprise to see the joint bid, as we have mentioned before, to win. But what does it really mean? In particular, we want to ask two questions. First of all, how will it change women's football for the hosts, FIFA, and the fans? Second. For those who voted for Colombia, why was that, and are these grudges reconcilable? First of all, we want to talk about the development pathways for football in Australia. We briefly talked about Ellie Carpenter, who's from Australia, and her move to Olympic Lyonnais a few weeks ago. 
Her move is a further acknowledgement that following Sam Kerr, who is at Chelsea, Caitlin Ford, who is Arsenal, and several other players who have made moves to Europe, Australia is producing some of the best women football players in the world with far fewer domestic resources at its disposal. They have the W League, which remains underutilised, as a springboard for Australia's emerging talent. They only have 40 rounds and a final series. The competition has needed to be paired with other domestic leagues like the NWSL in the United States if players, mainly Australian women players, are to make a full-time career out of football. But playing in two different leagues also means that they don't get a lot of rests throughout the season, leading to fatigue, to injury and to burnout. For those who aren't able to make the dream moves overseas, like the players we've mentioned before, the only remaining option really is to find a second job while maintaining fitness in the state-based National Premier League competition, which over half of the players from the most recent W League season have done. Now, the second part we want to talk about FIFA, as we have said. There are, of course, several reforms for this bidding process, and one of the most important ones is that the votes are public. We know who voted for what, and we know how the votes are divided. Now, this came after criticisms for awarding Russia and Qatar the right to host the Men's World Cup in 2018 and soon in 2022, respectively. Some of you might remember that Russia scored the lowest in FIFA's own report, and concerns were raised because of human rights abuses in Russia, and of course, Qatar's bid has been overshadowed by corruption claims, and the fact that it is being held, it could have been held in the summer, 40 degrees Celsius, as we've mentioned, and now they're trying to move it to winter, which, again, disrupts the European season. An additional benefit of this tournament is that they are bringing football to Asia, which would be a new experience for fans in these continents, and of course could be a new business opportunity for FIFA, for women's football, and for different teams in these continents as well. Lastly, we want to talk a bit about the fans who will be watching the game from different places, at home, in Australia, in New Zealand. The fact that they included quite a number of regional towns in Australia and New Zealand to host some national teams for the duration of the tournament will effectively bring trade missions into regional towns by creating region-to-region links across countries and showcasing what is produced locally in particular towns and use this opportunity really as a springboard to boost tourism within Australia and New Zealand. Now, Sydney, Auckland, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide and Perth are all planned to host bigger matches, the opening games, the finals, but smaller cities like Newcastle and Hamilton have also been proposed to stage matches in the tournament that we know will run between July and August 2023. And in addition to games being played, there are places we call proposed hubs, which will act as a training base and hotel for each team that qualifies, which features local towns like Albury, Maitland, Cessnock, 
towns, Townsville, etc., etc., in Australia, and for example, New Plymouth in New Zealand, many of which will see jobs being created and, of course, investment on updating facilities or even building new infrastructure before the tournament kicks off. Now, of course, there are tourists, there are officials who would otherwise not travel to Australia or New Zealand to now have a reason to come here. And for local exporters, for businesses who want international connections, this again is a good springboard for them to use. That is the Women's World Cup to make these connections and perhaps to build their own brand. We'll be back. But we want to look at the second issue for this segment. That is, those who voted against the bid, and the votes are as follows: the FIFA president voted for Australia and New Zealand the joint bid, Asia joint bid, Africa joint bid, North and Central America joint bid, Oceania joint bid, South America voted for Colombia, which we expected, UEFA. Also voted as a whole block for Colombia as well, meaning that Colombia has thirteen votes, and with the remainder of the votes going to Australia and New Zealand. Now we expected, as we have said, the South American countries to support Colombia's bid. We explained a bit last week. These countries could benefit economically, and the fact that football will be played in their area means that their football associations will benefit from the increasing awareness. And attention to the sport, but perhaps something that came as a bit of a surprise is UEFA, who voted as a block against Australia and New Zealand. Now, FFA, the Football Association in Australia, their chief executive James Johnson, when asked about England's vote for Colombia, he actually told Fox Sports, "Quote: I actually don't find it very funny." I think that was quite disrespectful. To be perfectly honest with you, now Gianni Infantino, that's FIFA's president, also said that he was surprised to see UEFA vote against the technical report. UEFA, on the other hand, said in a statement that vote for Colombia was an attempt to try to increase the growth of the women's game in South America, and the block vote was a solidarity agreement by the European members of the FIFA Council. That's UEFA. They said in a statement, and I quote: "It was a choice between two countries, Australia and New Zealand, where women's football is already strongly established, and a continent where it still has to be firmly implanted and has a huge development potential." Now, here's a reasoning why we think UEFA voted against the joint bid. From their statement, UEFA wants Women's World Cup 2023 to be a developmental tournament. But why is that the case? Because there are so many other ways to develop women's football in a developed country, and it just seems that hosting a World Cup is not the best of all of them. Now we've come to two key reasons which we think are political. One is Women's World Cup 2019 in France, and the second is to gain allies for future bids. The first reason. Is as we said, Women's World Cup in France in 2019, which was a success. It broke a lot of records. There was a spike in support, and UEFA doesn't want Women's World Cup 2023 to overshadow it. They want people to remember France 2019, which of course France is part of UEFA in Europe, 
as a success because it was held in Europe. Women's World Cup in 2023, if it's held in Australia, and now it is in Australia and New Zealand, means a comparison with France 2019, which potentially could put UEFA at a disadvantage in future bids if FIFA and other countries realise that hosting in Asia, Oceania, other places other than Europe could bring them the similar advantages of them more in terms of developing the sport and bringing in revenue. Also, they said explicitly that women's football is developing in Colombia. They know it won't be as huge as France. It's clear that women's football is not just developing in France. It's quite well established in France. So again, if Women's World Cup 2023 isn't a success because it's in Colombia and because it's developing, UEFA has a better chance of winning the future bids, such as the Women's World Cup in 2027. Since Colombia's Women's World Cup bid, if it had been successful, could show the world that bringing football to a new continent or area is too risky. Meaning that Australia, New Zealand, and Asia, Oceania, these countries could be seen as risky choices for FIFA in future bids as well. So that's why they want it to be in Colombia as well. So, in general, there are two things that we think UEFA wants to keep. That is the memory of France 2019, and that is better than the Women's World Cup in 2023, and other football associations that bringing the game to non-football powerhouses, so to say, is not a good idea. And the second reason, we think, is that the South American bloc is more, quote, loyal, shall we say, than the Asia or Oceanic bloc. Even North and Central American countries voted for Australia and New Zealand, countries that are in general closer with Colombia in terms of location and the ties than Australia and New Zealand. We would have thought that Central or North American countries may vote for Colombia, which they didn't. So, of course, there are not a lot of votes to come from the South American bloc, but UEFA also knows that this is how a bit could be won or lost, since the South American bloc is more likely to form a bloc with UEFA than the Asian bloc would with UEFA. Because, for example, in this bid, we could see Asian countries considering themselves as rising powers, which we can see in terms of football and also in terms of economics notably China, Japan, etc. So UEFA probably thinks that having South America as an ally is more reliable than having Asia as an ally, which of course is some sort of global politics, if you may, with South America more inclined to be friendly with UEFA, to gain the support because of their relatively developmental status, compared to Asia, who would be willing to form blocks with other countries or even form their own blocks, seeing, as we've said, the rise in the political power and development in football, especially in women's football in general. So this week we are bringing in our long-standing segment, The Voices, where we invite anyone and everyone to send or record 
us a message to show their support to young girls looking to join Women's Football One Day. In our interviews, every time I ask my guests to do this, and as always, we invite our listeners to also join us if they want to, to send us a message, to record us a message in any format they want to. And this week, we are happy to play one of those messages from Sophie Penny, who is a freelance journalist, and here's her message on why women's football is important. For me. Women's football is so important because it shows that women matter in sport. You've seen the crowds that it's drawn this season, matches at the Etihad, Stamford Bridge, the new Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, the Olympic Stadium. It's huge, so many people going to watch women play sport. Now women's sports have been undervalued for centuries. There's not enough coverage in the media at all and they're just underappreciated. You only have to go to the comments on Twitter to see that. But women deserve better. They represent such a big portion of the population and it's just not reflected. The skill levels are incredible now. You only have to watch one game to see, see the women's technical ability. So they deserve better. And women's football, you know, it's really leading the way. You hear captains like, England hockey captain Holly Pern Webb or Heather Knight from England cricket and they say that in, that England football and women's football in the UK is really leading the way it's inspiring them it's showing them the level of the crowds they can achieve the social media coverage they can get the the mainstream media coverage they can get it's inspiring other sports and it's inspiring young women and young girls that they can play sport too that they can play football. It's not a man's world. And I think broadening that outlook for young people and for everyone is so important to achieve gender equality and make opportunities equal. Here's what else you need to know this week. The US National Women's Soccer League, NWSL, has announced that players can choose to remain in the locker room or express their individual views on the pitch while the national anthem is being played. NWSL Commissioner Lisa Baer said that, quote, the NWSL stands behind every player, official and staff member. New on the field, stand with your hand over your heart, honour your feelings in the privacy of the locker room or midfield. That's it for our show this week. If you liked the podcast, remember to rate, subscribe and share it with your friends and family. We'll be back next week. Thank you again for listening. I'm Harry Chan and this is the She Plays On Women's Football Podcast.